There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. On the last episode... Of guilt. Um, the community has got an interest in informants and narcs, you know, they lead to a successful prosecution of a lot of crimes. But the evidence needs to be corroborated. I mean, you're dealing with fundamentally dishonest people, a whole lifetime of dishonesty. Hmm. Suddenly, why are they telling the truth, you know? So, right now, we're sort of just in this thick bush, all native bush. These rocks kind of strewing around underneath the undergrowth, you know, the foliage that's dropped down over the decades and it's a bit of a needle in a haystack. And he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks. It, it just, um, it could just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive, and I, I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging, and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. Before we get started in this episode, I just want to remind you that up until this point, you haven't heard any of my investigation. You haven't heard my new witnesses and any new evidence. We've simply covered the known facts of the case and the trial, so you have a solid understanding before we dive deep. But I can assure you, this is about to change. Very soon, you're going to hear from a never-before-heard witness, who I believe was one of the last people to see Heidi and Urban alive. And what he saw completely changes everything. And he's only the beginning. This is going to be a long season. But by the end, I'm confident that whatever you thought you might have known about this case will be flipped on its head. This season of the podcast is doing record numbers, both in New Zealand and overseas. Clearly, people are connecting to this tragic story. 
Those extra ears have meant a ton of extra tips. So keep spreading the word. And I promise, the best is yet to come. Now let's get into it. In the last three episodes, we've discussed in detail how David Tamahedi alleges he broke into and stole Heidi and Urban's white Subaru up Tararu Creek Road. We've looked at the sighting of the couple at Crosby's Clearing and the secret jailhouse witnesses. Now, in this episode, we're going to look at arguably some of the most important pieces of evidence in this case, and what I personally believe has been seriously overlooked. Strap in, because it's time to talk about the jacket and the tent. Tui, just stop being nosy. Yes. <laughs> yes, no, she's not good at the head t- one. I don't know what happened to her. We got her as a rescue dog and oh. she was three years old. <laughs> Tui! I can tell she's one of those ones. She's a bit, but once she, once she <laughs> likes you, she's probably loving Oh, she'll want to, yeah, sit on your lap. This is Graham Pierce, a Thames resident, avid tramper, and search and rescue volunteer. And a man much like John Cassidy and Mel Knopf who in late July of 1989 made a discovery that changed his life forever. Heidi Parkinson's jacket and wallet just off the trail between the Tararu Creek Road end and Crosby's clearing. Graham, like hundreds of other volunteers, police and army, had been scouring the bush since the 28th of May in the area searching for anything that might provide answers to the disappearance of Heidi and Urban. And prior to the discovery of Heidi's clothing and wallet, the most exciting thing they'd found was a bag of marijuana hanging in a tree. But that would all change on the 29th of July, 1989, four months after Heidi and Urban were last seen. The search, so are you part of the local search and rescue? I was back then, yeah. Oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, so... You know, once they'd found the tag, then we did a search of Tauru Road, both sides, you know, and then and we went up into a, a farm there. There was, there was a guy living on this farm. Um, he grew a bit of cannabis, <laughs> that sort of thing. So they did that farm over pretty well. In fact, a mate of mine and I, uh, we were going through and looking, and of course, we'd, you know, John Hughes has said to us, there's so much missing. She could be in a sleeping bag hung up in a tree. So don't keep your eyes on the ground. Be on, you know, be observant. And we come past and there's this plastic bag in a tree. And I said to John, what the hell's that? He said, I don't know. And he gave it a poke. <laughs> and all this brown liquid came out and it was bloody marijuana, but it had got all wet. <laughs> oh, oh, they're drying it out or something? Like they must, I don't know. Well, they just hid it up there, but it was all wet anyway. So that was a bit of a laugh, but we never found anything. And then Queen's birthday weekend, they decided that they'd do a search of all the trails because by this time, April, May, June, we're not looking for people anymore because there was no, still not really a thing about someone got murdered. It was that maybe someone got lost and they just died, which was stretching it a little bit. You think one of them would have got out and found their way somewhere if they had any clues at all. 
And so they decided on that Queen's birthday weekend, we're doing the search. Well, that was a lovely weekend. That was absolutely pelted down. Luckily, Craig and myself and one other guy, and I can't remember his name, we got on the helicopter first and they shot us up the Caronga Valley and they dropped us off on a ridge over on the other side of the gorge. So we hopped off there. The helicopter took off. He got back to town and said, I'm not going up there again. Was that bad? <laughs> it was that bad because there's, you know, there's wires across the valley as well. So I had to watch out for those. But he, I mean, he ferried the other guys in, into Crosby's and up ground that way, but he wouldn't go up the valley again. <clears throat> so we did our stint and we came around and passed Moss Creek Hut and along and searched all around there, then came down and came out in the Caronga Valley and got a ride back into town from the, um, down at the Christ, uh, the education camp, they had a radio base set up there. Yeah, so we did that over, yeah, Queen's birthday weekend. That was June 5th and 6th and whatever it was. And then after that, it sort of died. And, <coughs> pardon me, then July, because Mel and them suddenly twigged about this, it sort of came back to them that, hang on, there's this couple that were up there and there was a dark guy and this blonde woman. So they thought about that. So they decided what they'd do is that they'd go up to Crosby's on the weekend of the 22nd, 23rd of July, which just happened to be my eldest son's 21st birthday. So I said, I can't go, you know, I'm sorry. So we had his 21st birthday party and um, one of my mates went in but he came out Saturday late, like they went on Friday, and he came out Saturday late Saturday afternoon to come to the party. And yeah, they spent the weekend up there, but they didn't find anything. And I think yeah, some of those photos must have been taken around that time when they were camped up there. So and took, I'll have a look at those after we have a yeah, chat. But that um, that photo there is them going in for that, oh, that weekend. One. Oh, okay. Also, yeah. there's a few of them that went up that weekend. Yeah, that's the whole lot that went up that's there that weekend. You see the date on it, on the photo itself. I mean, the photo was blown up for a photo that's in there by a guy called Greg Hazlitt. He got very involved in trying to find them. He had all these ideas. I took him up to where I'd found the jacket and then on to um, the Jamtons. And, yeah, he dived off the track doing things. I said, well, it's been searched. But he said, how well has it been searched? And I said, well, I can't say. Let's go back to when July and, and they've yeah. all gone up to look at Crosby's. Yeah, so they got up there and um, so they, they spent the weekend up there searching around. You'll see on that map there's a circle around where I think they searched. <clears throat> anyway, um, then they came out. And from that point on, I don't know what got into my head but my wife said to me you're like a bloody bear with a sore head what's wrong and I said I don't know I said I just feel that I need to go up there you know there's something nagging at me so I said I've got to get it out of my system so on the Saturday um of course I back in those days I had a rifle and all that because I used to shoot goats so I packed it up and I did a few silly funny things like I went to the cupboard and took out a brand new plastic bag, you know, the black ones you use for rubbish, and I put that in my pack. 
and off I went. So I thought, how am I going to approach this? So I thought, okay, on the way up, I'll look on the left-hand side. So what I did is I didn't walk the trail all the time. When I could walk off the trail and walk into the bush 10, 20, 30 feet, I would. Because, you know, we were, because we'd been up there in June, I thought it's no use walking the trail because it's been walked and people have been looking both sides, so I need to go that bit further. So I went all the way, got up to the Jamtons, had lunch, thought, okay, it's time I headed back. So I started heading back and I got to just the other side, about five or ten minutes from the big slip, came down a little dip across a bit of a muddy patch. And just as I got to the end of it, there was a little animal track going off to my left. <clears throat> and I was sort of almost over it by that stage <laughs> because I wanted to get out and watch the football. Anyway, I walked off it and turned around and I looked down and it was like going down really steep. And I thought, well, nobody in their right mind would go down there and it's so open. You know, if there was anything there, I would see it. So I sort of pushed myself off the tree and turned this way and, oh my God, here's this jacket. Well, here's this blue thing, square blue thing sitting there. So I went over to it and lifted it up and I could see the white. So immediately in my tiny little mind, I remembered down at the police station seeing a photo of her with this blue jacket with a white V on it. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Your heart must have been going, jeez. It was, yeah, (laughs) it went boom, boom. (laughs) So I got out my brand new plastic bag and very carefully pushed it in there. I was watching too many TV shows. (laughs) Wrapped it up. Then I took the plastic bag I had my sandwiches in and tied it on a piece of super jack directly above where I found the jacket, went back to the track, tied another bit of plastic on a, a branch of a tree and scarfed the tree, sort of stood there and looked at it and thought, yeah, I can find my way back, and then came out. So how far off the trail were you where that was? It wasn't that far, but it was far enough that you couldn't see it from the trail. Mm. Anyway, I got back went to the police station, knocked on the door, because the police station was at this end of the town at that stage, the old one, and a couple of the guys came, and I said, look, I found this bit of clothing up in the Tauru. Oh, bring it in. So they just tipped it out on the, on the table, opened it up, you know, and I thought, oh, well, that's so much for anything. And, um, yeah, they said, oh, hell, yeah, okay, you know, leave it with us. We'll get things sorted, give you a yell. So I came home, I'd missed most of the football, but anyway. So the next day, they arranged and, um, yeah, you know, well, two teams of search and rescue guys, probably about four or five in each team, and some detectives and that, we all went up there. I took them all up there. So they cordoned off the area where I'd put the jacket for about, well, say a circle, about 20 foot at least, and then we did a sweep down the banks on both sides for about 100 to 200 metres where we could get. Found nothing. We didn't find anything more. But the detectives, from where the um, jacket was, further over, going south, they found her wallet. Because it had a name in it and it had some um, overseas funds or something in it. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what was in it. Yeah, so the reason it wasn't seen from backtracking, it wasn't seen from the track, is of course you drop down here like this into the track, and I walked around this side of a little lump that was here oh, okay. as I came out of this, and it was round here. 
So from the track, you couldn't see it because it was over this little hump, then it went down, and then it went out, and then it went straight down the hill on this um, wallet was just over here somewhere because I didn't look at anything else once I'd found the jacket. I just left everything as it was and moved away. Yeah, so when we got up there, of course, we had the jacket again, so we folded it back up and they experimented with trying to throw it from the track over to where it could land there and there was no way that jacket would stay together. So someone had gone around there, probably with a pack, and either was looking through the pack and put it out there and didn't put it back into the pack or whatever. <laughs> From the date searching commenced, on May 28th, through June and July, the bush from Tararu Creek Road end right through to Crosby's Clearing and throughout this entire area had been searched by hundreds of experienced volunteers and professionals. Every track and a distance to either side had been, in theory, searched. Yet somehow, Graham Pierce, on his own, makes the discovery of a lifetime. Heidi Parkinen's jacket just off the track behind a mound. But even more startling than the discovery of the jacket is the position of the jacket when Graham found it neatly folded in a perfect square like you would fold to put in your drawers. It clearly had not fallen out of someone's pack. And as Graham mentioned, police attempted to fold the jacket and throw it back to the spot just to see if it were even possible that it could be thrown from the track over the mound to where it was found. And it was not. When Graham located the jacket, he marked the spot. And when police returned, they quickly found Heidi's wallet a few feet away in the undergrowth. Unlike the jacket, however, the wallet appeared to have been thrown into this spot. A water-damaged photo of Urban had come loose and sat on the ground. It seemed whoever placed the jacket here had thrown the wallet to where it was found. When Graham made this discovery, it was huge news. For the police, it was fantastic. These items now appeared to confirm, without a doubt, that at the very least, Heidi had been somewhere up this track between Tararu Creek Road End and Crosby's Clearing. Corroborating Cassidy and Knopf's alleged sighting of Tamahedi and Heidi at Crosby's. But two important questions remained. Who put the jacket there? And why? And of course, what I believe is the biggest question of all. When? More often than not, it's the small details that make the difference. When I read about Graham's discovery, it was described that he had simply found the jacket folded on the ground a few feet off the track down an animal trail. But it turns out, that's not the entire picture. Importantly, he says the jacket was found behind a lump or a mound, preventing it from being seen unless you were to actually walk down the animal track and look behind it. 
A few days later, while Graham and I were at the treasury, I asked him to physically demonstrate it to me. And I picked up on another point I've not read elsewhere. The jacket wasn't sitting directly on the ground. It was actually sitting, neatly folded, on another small mound. Behind the larger mound was a small, roughly, foot-high mound. And on top of this it was presented, neatly folded, for Graham to find. Clearly, this jacket wasn't put here by accident. And it would seem that despite the fact it was hidden behind this mound, it was put here for someone to find. So if it was seemingly so easy for Graham to find, on his own, how was it missed during the intensive searches that had gone before him? Graham tells me that much like Cassidy and Knopf, he's forever suffered from the nagging questions of what if. You don't. I mean, I can go to bed some nights and all of a sudden your mind goes back because you're thinking, did we miss something? You know, how, you know, and this is it, how good were the other teams at searching? Yeah. Um, I knew from the team that I had, and it was hard because you had everybody wanted to be involved in town. So if you had search and rescue guys, not a problem because they knew the drill. You get civilian, <laughs> saying civilians, you get other people that weren't used to the bush but wanted to help come with you and they were sort of like stupid sheep <laughs> because when you're doing contact searching, you've got to stay in a, a pretty good line. You've got to stay close to the guy next to you, so not so you can touch hands, but so that when you sweep your eyes along, yeah. you're not you're missing anything. There's no gap. Eh? Yeah, and there's no gap in the middle. <clears throat> and, you know, it can be so easy to miss something. So you've got to be really careful. Describe that bush to me up there. It's mm. you know, it's not like a pine forest. This is thick bush, isn't it? Oh yeah, but. and that's it. Being realistic, um, you know, when we were doing the sweeps off each side of the track, there were some instances where we got twenty feet off the track, and it was so thick you couldn't get through it. So if I've got to pipe my throat way, way through it, then you're not leading a person through that. When it comes to how the items were missed in the initial searches, Graham's at a loss, but believes the only logical explanation is that the area behind the mound was simply overlooked during a time of poor weather or by an inexperienced searcher. And the question of why it was put there remains a tantalising one to this day. The fact that it was unique Mm, and had her, and the name with the wallet and stuff as well. Yeah, and the wallet was thrown there. So whether she did it on their way in or whether he did it on his way out because he would step off the track because he wouldn't want to be get, meet anyone. Mm. He'd already met John and Mel, Yeah. so you wouldn't meet anyone else. But what some people don't realise is that when you're in the bush, it's a whole different ball game. And you, what you can do is that if I'm in the bush and I'm on my own and I'm walking, or because if I'm with someone else, I'm probably talking at some stage. But if you're on your own and you're walking and you can hear a group of people coming, 
you only have to step off the track six to ten feet and stand next to a tree and use that as cover and they will walk right past you and they won't know you were there. It's that simple. If you look at that map, you'll see there is a lot of area that hasn't been searched. I I suppose the thing too is like you said that you know you did your search well. But I don't know how how good anyone else did. So you can only hope that... So so what are we looking at here, where are we? Yeah. So there's all that he's written the dates on them, so it's a bit hard to see. But that's the area where the jacket was. Okay. There's Crosby's, and that's the area they searched there on that weekend, the 21st of the 7th. Where's the big slip? The big slip is about here. Okay. Where they stop, start. And where's Tararu? Oh, that's the road there. Yeah. So it ends here. So there's okay. lines across there is where we, you know, we searched each side of it. That's the farm we came up on. So that's the fifth month. Yeah. Um, 1990, we, we did some searching up in here and just did some testing with radio equipment and all that. And yeah, we came down the night and go, crew I was with. Um, yeah. So that anything 89, see that. Um, the, all this red thing is where we did on Queen's birthday weekend. Oh, wow. So they only walk the trail looking. Yeah. But it was just you and a few Graham and I pour over a map that he's carefully detailed with all the searches conducted by himself and others like John Cassidy and Mel Knopf over the last 34 years. Each one carefully recorded in great detail and filed. For years, and decades. Oftentimes, when working on this case, I find myself just at a loss to understand how such evil can exist in the world. But it's meeting people like Graham that tips the balance back, reminding me that there really are amazing people out there. Those that have quietly dedicated their lives to this cause, to the hope they can finally send Heidi home. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. In this episode, I've introduced this topic of the jacket and the wallet. And you've heard it directly from the man that found it. After the discovery, police and army conducted a more detailed search of the track and the area. And aside from a bag of apples further up the track, found nothing. Forensics also luminol tested the area surrounding the jacket and wallet and the items themselves and found no traces of blood. Four fingerprints were found on the wallet. Two belonged to Heidi, the other two from a person unknown. Kevin Sturgeon, the police fingerprint analyst, stated that none of the identified fingerprints matched the accused. They weren't Tamahedis. When I asked about the jacket itself and the state it was in, Graham did note that aside from it being wet, it wasn't covered in leaves like might have been expected after four months in the bush during winter. He told me it may have had a leaf on it, but not much. When the wallet was discovered by police after Graham took them to the site, it was in fact a photo of Urban that was seen first, then the wallet next to it. Another photo of Heidi's family was nearby. No doubt, you've got questions. And some of you may already have your own solutions. Did Heidi somehow leave these items here as a breadcrumb trail? Did Tamahedi place these here thinking they wouldn't be found? Or did someone else? There is still a lot to consider. But don't worry, we'll be revisiting this in a later episode when we begin to bring all the pieces of the puzzle together. And you'll come with me up that track, through that thick bush, as we retrace Graham's steps and visit the location ourselves. If your head is already spinning, now I'm going to put it into overdrive. Because if the discovery of Heidi's jacket and wallet is puzzling, then you wait till you hear about the tent. At the end of Tararu Creek Road today, you'll find a range of sheds and small buildings. But this was not the case in 1989, when only a small hut and a barn could be found. The hut remains today, but the barn is now gone. Earlier in this podcast, I'd been told that Heidi and her barn's tent had been found in this hut. But it's since come to my attention that in fact it was in this barn that Randall Cornish made the shocking discovery. More disturbing than the tent itself was when Randall found it. 
December of 1989, some nine months after Heidi and Urban's disappearance. And with this came the simple, inescapable fact. This barn had been searched. Officially, not once, but at least twice. The first time in June of 1989, and then in July of 1989, a police forensic team even examined the barn and found nothing. So it was that Randall Cornish, who happened to have been one of the witnesses that saw Heidi and Urban's white Subaru parked up Tararoo Creek Road on Sunday, April 9th, returned to the road end and started exploring the old barn. He stated, In the rear room, in front of a pile of old sofas and chairs, I found a nylon tent. What Randall saw was a tent wrapped up in a silver fly. The fly being the outer piece, the separate piece of material that stretches over a tent for weather protection. When he took the bundle outside and unfolded it, he saw the words, Zicklin, Sweden. And sure enough, it was Heidi and Urban's tent, which had been listed as one of the items never recovered. And the tent itself potentially held some clues. The most notable thing, the straps that would normally hold the pegs into the ground had all been cut. Police, then believing the metal pegs might still be in the ground somewhere, searched all the campsites with metal detectors to no avail. Inside the tent, a tiny, very likely unrelated spot of blood was found on the roof. The spot matched Urban's blood type of A positive. But no spots of blood were found on the floor, as might have been expected if a violent event had occurred. However, in the main tent door, a zigzag rip could point towards the possibility of something untoward having taken place. Could they have been attacked in their tent while they slept? This tent and its discovery has really bothered me. And while I was reading through Tamahiti's trial transcript, I noticed something. Mentioned in evidence that I'd not read before that stuck out to me about the straps and not the fact that they were cut but more importantly where they were cut okay um, in my office right now the tent that was found in the barn at the end of Tararu Creek Road now this tent is it's very interesting I've just been reading through some some trial notes here. There's something that stuck out to me just here, and I haven't really read it anywhere else, but I'm going to read this to you. Uh, So it's at the beginning of the trial, and they're just going over evidence. And uh, they're being asked about the silver tent fly. Would you please just open the packet and identify the area where the fly tags are located. Looking along the side of the fly at intervals, 
you can see where ties at one stage have been. You see it's been cut near the top of the tent. Same again that one there, and that one there, three on each side. In each case, has the strap been severed very close to the edge of the tent itself? Yes, right on the edge of the tent, yes. Is that the case for the other three tabs on the other side? Yes, it is. Okay, so you imagine a fly, uh, if you're familiar with a tent. So you put your tent up, and then the fly's the bit that goes over the top. It's separate to the tent, and if you do it right, then it, sh- it shouldn't touch the tent, and you kind of pin it down separately, and it stops moisture getting through, you know, from the outside in to stop rain or, or wind or whatever. So the the tent and the fly, these were things that were noted by police as not being found. Now, I have a list here of, of all the different things that were never found. And this list that I'm looking at right now was compiled in August of 1989. And on it, there's a picture of uh, their, their fly. And there's actually one here with, with Heidi in there. But when you look at the fly, so when when they're talking about these fly tags, what they're really talking about is the, you know, the 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 cords that you would normally peg down into the ground to pull the tie, that the fly nice and taut so it's not loose. So something that stuck out to me straight away here, when I was reading that trial transcript, is about where the cords were cut. They specifically says here, severed very close to the edge of the tent itself. Yes, right on the edge of the tent. Meaning, you know, the cord is cut right at the very edge of the fly. Now, when I'm looking at, I pulled up a picture of the fly itself and it actually shocked me straight away. So the fly on each side, it had three, they called them fly tags, but really they're a strap. By the looks of it, they're black and I can't see exactly, but maybe each one of them is maybe one to two centimeters wide. Three on each side of the fly and they're a meter long. Why would you cut these? Why would you cut these straps right at the very edge of the fly? Why would you do that? The police were always looking when they found this tent, they were looking for pegs in the ground. They went and searched all the different campsites everywhere with metal detectors, thinking that someone had cut the pegs off, perhaps to pull the tent up quickly. But looking at these straps, that's clearly not what was done. They were cut right next to the fly, because I believe they wanted to maximize the length of each one of those pieces of strap. Now you've got three on each side, that's six one meter lengths of strap which would be really good for tying someone up. There's no other reason I can think of that you would cut those straps off right at the edge than if you wanted to use them. You know, this, this tent has, you know, how it ended up being found in that barn is just, Something that's just never really been explained. The police just didn't really have an explanation for it. But are you going to tell me that that tent has been completely missed 
in two searches, June and July, and I've spoken to people that were involved in the searches, said they searched all those buildings. There's no way that tent was there. So the tent had to have been put there sometime after, unless you're going to accept that the police simply missed the tent that was lying on the ground inside the barn in that back room, which I'm just not going to believe. Someone's put that there, and it has to have been put there after July. Explain that. I think you're going to find difficulty explaining how that's possible. Yeah, yeah, they didn't piss around. John Cassidy and Mel, when they were running the show, man, they were thorough. Yeah. Remember, we had a lot of guys that was John Cass and Mel's age who were totally invested in it. And there was a lot of older guys who had a lot of knowledge who knew where everything were, all the old pig hunters, because that was back in the day when we didn't have all this health and safety bullshit where you can't go out and do stuff. We could just go out and do what we liked. Yeah. And it's harder now, but back in those days, we just did whatever we felt like. We, if we wanted to go somewhere, we went. If we wanted to go down a creek with no ropes and in the dark, we could have done it. We, yeah. That's just how things were done. So if there was a shed in an obscure place, they would have gone up and checked it. Yeah, and if they, someone else would have known about it, one of the pig hunters who have run around there their whole life, the old-time guys would have said, oh, I know about this shed up there. We need to go and look at that because that's the type of stuff that was going on at the time. Nothing, nothing got missed. Yeah, I mean, so what I mean is you wouldn't come across something like that tent and think, oh, that's not important. Oh, no way, no way, definitely not. I mean, we were instructed as to what to look for. We would be looking for items of clothing, items of tramping equipment. Tramping equipment is pretty obvious. It's a tent or a pack or a billy or a cup or anything. Yeah. One times Robert Harris label. Found Tararoo Creek Road, beginning. 11.45 hours. One times blue New World plastic bag. Found Tararoo Creek Road beginning 11.45 hours. One times aluminium barbecue leg. Found Tararoo Creek Road beginning 11.45 hours. One times glass container with dry rice. Found Tararoo Creek Road 10.50 hours. Candle wax. Found Tararoo Creek Road 12.30 hours. One times sleeping bag cover. Blue. Found. Barn. Tararoo Creek Road. One times jandal and other items. Found. Barn. Tararoo Creek Road. These are a few of hundreds of items. Police and searchers located between May and August of 1989 in the Tararoo Creek Road area. The level of detail is extreme, and it goes on and on, pages and pages. One piece of twine, an Italian spectacle arm, but no tent. Then suddenly, on the 11th of December 1989, two new entries, one times silver tent fly and one times tent green, Found in barn at top of Tararoo Creek Road. How is this possible? That given the level of detail in the searches, that the tent had been missed. Especially given searches were instructed to specifically look for camping gear. According to those involved with the search, it simply isn't possible. 
the barn and every other building was searched in great detail. Randall Cornish, that found the tent, has sadly passed away. As have so many in this case. So I can't ask him the exact way he found it. But by all accounts, it wasn't hidden. It was simply sitting in front of a pile of old sofas and chairs. So if it couldn't have been missed in the searches, then what possibilities are we left with? Quite simply, it had to have been put there at a later time. And remember that David Tamahedi was locked away in prison from late May 1989. And there he would remain until 2010. So clearly he didn't put it there. So then who did? There's no denying this was their tent. It was a specific Swedish brand. Not one that could have been purchased in New Zealand and accidentally left there. There really are only two options. A. The police put it there. Or B. Someone else did. As far as option A is concerned, I don't believe this is the answer. The discovery of the tent didn't really help the police case. If anything, it added more confusion, which is useful to any defence. And it would have required the tent to have been somehow found and kept aside to be planted at a later time. Which just doesn't seem realistic, given that in the early days of the investigation, when a majority of the other items were found, no one knew this was going to be a murder investigation. So if not the police, then who? Is it possible someone else, not connected to the case, simply found the tent nearby and decided to place it in this barn? No. As you know, this entire area was searched with a fine-tooth comb. They made note of bottle caps. The tent could not have been missed. So what does that leave us with? It leaves us with some serious fucking questions. That's what. For now, I'm not going to speculate. But we'll revisit the tent its discovery, and what this might mean at a later point. For me, aside from Urban's body, the discovery of the tent, the jacket and the wallet, are likely the most important pieces of evidence in this case. It's clear. Solve the mystery of these items, and you solve the case. Lots we're coming up to it now. turn right here where it forks and we can look back up on where we actually found the, the bag with the, um, the leg in it. Let's jump forward in time, 28 years to 2017, when experienced bushman Alan Ford discovered a bag of clothes, discarded in forest on the Coromandel Peninsula about 20 kilometres from where Urban's body was found. At the time, this was national news. 
because it was believed that these clothes, which included women's leggings, could have belonged to Heidi Parkinen. So what's this? Is this called the the Fongmata Peninsula? Yep. Coromandel Peninsula, what is it? Yep. Uh, yeah, Peninsula Road, I think it's called. So we've just got out Peninsula Road and fuck, the, the, the view here is beautiful. Unreal. Is that Slipper? Yeah, Slipper. Is that the Alderman? Yeah. And you got the mayor. You see a few boats out there? Yeah, that's where we should be. I'll make sure, um, check on my Instagram and you'll find a drone shot of this place. So you were here walking in to go for a piss? Yep. So we're walking now through, it's quite steep hill and this used to all be forestry but it's been cut now so it's just slash and which is what's left over after they cut the pines and uh, pine cones. And, and up there was a, uh, was a forestry skid just on the top of that, just over the top there, you can see the edge of it there, all the slash. Yeah. There's a track coming down and we found... There was a road coming down through the forest and we found the bag just over there, roughly there, in the forest. So they'd thrown it from the, you could see the road a lot easier back then, but now it's just been cut over and thrashed over. Yeah, let's wander up there and have a look. So at the time, though this was sort of open pine, like you could walk through quite easy. Yeah, well... Well, from the other side, I actually came up here with one of the local constables, Wongamata, and it didn't take us long to walk in. You could actually see the road. Yeah. We showed him where the bag was, and he, he was pretty, um, yeah, I think he just wanted to get out of there. That's exactly where we would have found it. There's the ridge. There's, there's the thing. So we come down there and we come down the track. You can actually see it over there. See that track? Oh, yep. There it is there. Oh, let's that was the road back in the day. And... There it is there. You can actually... How the fuck did it get in here? See the road there? Yeah, yeah. And that went up onto the skid, and that drove down. And it would have come, may have come down onto here, and you may have been able back then to drive down onto the road. <coughs> so you've come up through here, and where do you reckon it was? Just here. Oh, like right here. Right there, actually, just below you. Show me how, like, how it was when you came along and you saw it. Like, what? When I went down here, I was just looking and I saw the bag, and it was 
just see the top of it amongst all the pine needles and I went to get it it was just all grown into the ground so God knows what kind it. of bag um, it was a really old um, like it was one of the early uh, well they didn't actually identify the bag but it was one of the um, early uh, the two handled thin plastic bags I oh, thought so, yeah yeah yeah, and it was just tied on the top, and it was just in a ball down there. And so when you pulled, you see that there's a bag there, yeah. and you pull it out. Yeah, I pulled around it and pulled it out and opened it up, and when I went to see what's in it, the um, I couldn't work out what it was. They were black and also a coloured pink and white leggings, and on the end of the leggings had two dark blue socks, Sewing onto the bottom of the two um, leggings, and uh, somebody had actually gone and sewn them so that it was almost like you pull your thing on and then your socks on the end and push into it. But they were like tramping socks; they weren't just light socks. They were quite mm. reasonably thick. And I thought, shit, that's bloody weird. And um, that's when I thought, shall one of this. Yeah, I wonder if this uh, is of any interest to the police over the Swedes. So, like everybody does. Mm. So, at that stage, I went out and when I went back into Wangwatau, I called into the police station and dropped it off there. And um, the police, one of the ladies at the at the station there said, oh, we get people bringing stuff in all the time, you know. And I said, well, yeah, I really would like you to check these out. She sort of had a look and said, okay, I'll put them in a bag sealed them in a police bag, put a name and stuff on it. And I said, oh, is, um, can you get hold of the constable and get him to give me a call because I'd like to take him out there. Oh, no, actually, I think he rang back. I gave my number and he rang back and said, I think. He approached me and said, could you take us out there? So then we came back out and we parked on the other side and we walked into here, which only took about bloody two or three minutes. And I showed him where the bag was found. He marked it with tape and all that. And um, and that was it. And he didn't. He sort of felt he felt that it was um, not the sort of place you'd find that. But later on, I think the police came up with the idea that it may have been an old rubbish dump. <laughs> um, but I can't see much rubbish around here. Can you? Standing in this spot, it's very clear that this is no rubbish dump. At the time of the discovery, it wasn't just the items that Alan found that caught the public's attention, but it was what the police did once he turned them over that caused a stir. And that's because they destroyed them. No. That doesn't make any sense. No, well, that's what they said. But so at the time here, we're sort of standing on what's that old track. So you said when you were here, this was a track? Yeah, it was. You could have easily driven down here with a small vehicle, yeah. easily. And it looked like someone had Especially just turfed in 89, it off. Huh? And someone would have just turfed it off. Yeah. And it's been Well, like, that's what it looked like. Well, how did it get there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, as opposed to someone burying it. Oh, you know, it looked as if it was thrown over, and over the years, the, the pine needles has grown up um, with all the stuff. Um, and it's grown over it and covered it, but... And then what happened after, so that, because I assume they sent it away for DNA or... No, they didn't. So we, we all know they didn't because um, uh, I followed it up just to see how they what sort of, what they were going to do with it and whether it may have had anything to do with the 
the missing Swede um, issue at the time and they just came back to me and uh, the constable actually emailed me back and said look says no we're, we've you know talked to people we've shown it around or whatever they've done and said that we, you know, we've, we don't have any further interest we don't think it's involved at all so I said okay I said, um, I said well, look hey would I be able to go back up out and pick them up please and he said yeah sure so he emailed me and said that um, I could go out and pick them up you know, in the next week or so so that's exactly what I did I went out there to pick them up and I got there and um, said, told the lady there who I was and she said oh hang on a minute she said, oh, why are you here? And I said, I've organised through the constable to come out and pick up the um, the uh, the clothing that I handed in you know, a few weeks ago. And she said, um, oh, hang on a minute. I'll go and get uh, one of the other police officers. And then this lady came out, I can't remember her name. And she came out and she was quite, um, how could you put it, quite forward about the whole thing, saying, well, you know, what do you really want this for? And she says, well, look, I'm sorry, but I've, uh, I destroy, they've been destroyed. And then I just sort of thought, what? You can't, you can't be having me on. Why would you destroy something that um, has only been handed in, you know, five weeks ago? So early. Why would you want to destroy them? And uh, she said, well, I did it personally myself, and um, they've been incinerated. So I'm sorry, we can't help you anymore. So I said, okay. So that was it, and that's when I thought, this ain't just, just doesn't sit right. And I, you know, what I was hoping that they might do is do some DNA testing off, because those sort of uh, leggings and that would definitely have hair samples of something, you would think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, and, and in this day and age, it's amazing what they can do. Do you think they, they might have dead. destroyed them because they were like, oh, he's not coming to get them? No, 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 no. They knew I kept in contact with them every week. Yeah. Not at all. I've got. A, I had an email chain, so that wasn't the case at all. They knew clearly I wanted them back. But the officer said that I could have them back. They were there. And um, when, Do you they, think it's when they went there. more the case of just someone just doing something stupid as opposed to being some conspiracy? Oh, it could be. Yeah. Who knows? She's just been a bit arrogant and just thought he doesn't need these. Who knows? Yeah. I'm not, not, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. But, but you just, thought the clothes looked old? Oh, shit, yeah. Well, they were that old that when I actually went in to actually take it out and try to unfold it a bit, and they just like almost crumbled in my hands, mm. like they were that old. Like it was difficult, so I just carefully put it back in and just took it into the police. Mm. You had to be careful because they were that degraded. Like you could see what they were, but yeah, you, you, if you grabbed it and pulled it, it would just all pull apart. Mm. But you got to remember they've been in a plastic bag for her. They reckon about ten years was their estimate. So ten years is still a long time. But I don't know how you would. Um, I don't know how you would uh, decipher the difference between ten years and twenty or thirty years in a plastic bag. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a forensic scientist, so yeah. I have no idea. Mm. I suppose the thing with it is, it could have been nothing, and it's probably not connected. Could be connected. No, that's right. It's just the the procedure of what they've gone through, the process. That's for the frustrating part. Yeah, it is. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you're expecting to take it a bit more seriously than that. Mm. I mean, given where they were found and um, what they were, just didn't sort of, mm. it, it was quite odd. So I thought that they might have been. And do you think they, women's sort of leggings, 
they were women's leggings. How did it feel when you sort of opened it up and you saw Ooh, it was closed? Eerie. Honestly, it was quite eerie. Oh, I saw the bag, I didn't take much notice. I just thought, oh, yeah. But the way it was tied up and it was buried below all the needles just sticking out a bit. So I thought, oh, I'll have a quick look while I'm here. And um, what I found in it wasn't really what you'd want to see was two sets of black stretch-on nylon leggings, the thin ones, and one thicker, um, almost like, it was really weird because they had the socks, blue blue socks, sewn by hand onto the bottom of each side, so they become part of the yeah. leggings. Mm. Which was really, when I saw that, I thought, shit, that's the sort of thing a tramper would do. Yeah. You know? But. Mm. And that's why I thought, well, I better take this into the police. And you just never know, and just did the right thing. Yeah. And here we are today. Yeah, here we are today. Unlike the earlier discussion, about the items found at Tararu Creek Road. These women's leggings are of unknown time and origin. So could they have been Heidi's? The road from Tararu Creek to Parakawai, where Urban's body was found, would pass directly through this area. Could they have been thrown into the bush by a killer on the run? Who knows? Both myself and Alan believe it is very unlikely. But curiously, in some images of Heidi, she is seen wearing black leggings with similar features to the ones Alan found. Police told Alan that they had an expert look at the clothing and concluded that it was too recent to be connected to a 30-year-old case. But Alan believes that what he saw were clothes that were older than the 10 years police claimed. The reality is, that we likely wouldn't even be having this conversation if the police hadn't for some unexplained reason decided to incinerate the bag and its contents. Something that could have easily been explained away now carries a little bit of mystery and even has its own Wikipedia entry and has become just another part of the lore of the murders of Heidi and Urban. It's funny to see photos of Elin, Johan and Anna. We recognize Elin, but Johan has grown so big that we hardly know him. Anna we think of as if she's still a newborn, in spite of the fact that she's three months now. We have really a lot to do here. There's a lot we want to see, but time is rushing by. We don't have any time to work. We tried to see a couple of days ago whether we could help someone with fruit picking but they already had all the people they needed, and the season is over. It would have been good for the money, but we have enough to last until we get back. Instead of going to work, we try to find some gold, with meager results as usual. The candle has burnt out now, so I have to end this letter. Heidi. Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced, and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions. And are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. 
voice acting in this episode, Anna Waddell as Heidi. If you have any information related to the murders of Heidi and Oban, you can email us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and I highly recommend you join the discussion with over a thousand other listeners on the Guilt Podcast discussion group on Facebook. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. You can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI.